Jonah chapter number one in your Bibles. We serve an amazing God, right? We serve an amazing God. He is kind to us. He is gracious and merciful. He is good to us. However, his mercy and his grace don't always look good. And we're going to find this morning as we look at the life of Jonah that there is a time of chastening, a time where the Lord's mercy is not pleasant for us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that the Lord chastens those he loves. A matter of fact, he goes on to say in the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter, he says that if you're not chastened of the Lord, it is likely that you are not one of the Lord's child, children. For those who are God's children will experience the chastening of the Lord. I've often said that the people that are most concerning to me when it comes to, when it comes to living in sin are not those who live in sin as Christians and are, are constantly miserable in that sin. Because to me, if they're going to live in sin and call themselves a child of God, they ought to face miserable circumstances. The ones that concern me the most are the ones who live in sin and call themselves children of God and face no difficulties. They face no chastening. They face no hardship. Because the mercy of God and the grace of God, as we see in the life of Jonah, is such that when we run from God, when we flee from his presence, when we choose to not stay where he is, he is going to pursue us. That is a part of his kindness towards us. And when he pursues us, it doesn't always feel good. If you've been pursued by the Lord, you know that there are times that it's not pleasant. As a matter of fact, it says in Hebrews 12, we, we could just go there, but it says in Hebrews 12 that the chasing of the Lord is not, you finish it, the chasing of the Lord is not pleasant. I mean, in case you were thinking that it was supposed to be pleasant, it's not. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to take our attention off of the things of this world and put our attention back on God. You see, the chastening of the Lord is when we lose focus on who God is, when we lose focus on where God is and what God is doing. When we lose focus on God, God chastens us to restore us into focus to get our lenses back on or our proper filters on so that we can see him rightly. Sometimes the things of this world are peripheral, they're blurry, right? You have your eyes on Jesus, Peter in the storm. Peter's walking on the water with the Lord. He sees the Lord and everything. The storm around him is just kind of blurry. It's there, right? But it's just not really there because he's so focused on the Lord. But then Peter's eyes become focused on the storm around him, and what happens to the Lord? Have you ever seen one of those cameras that's able to take a snapshot of someone, and the person that you're meant to focus in on is there, and everything else is just kind of blurry in the background? Or you can take that same camera, I believe, I'm not a camera expert, but this is the illustration, so just have to deal with it. <laughs> this is what it's meant to teach. You can take that same camera, you can have that main object become blurry, and everything else comes to the forefront and is vibrant. That's the way it is in the Christian life. Sometimes Christ is vibrant. We see Christ, we're focused on Christ, we know that he is central to everything that we do, and all the things around us are just blurry. You really can't make, we really can't make sense of them, but they really don't matter because we're so focused on Christ. But there are also times that we have such a focus on the things of this world that our focus on Christ becomes blurry. We no longer understand Christ. The way that we couldn't explain the world, now we can't explain Christ because our, our focus has become so worldly focused. And so what the Lord does in those moments is he pursues us to bring us back into focus, right? Pursues us to bring us into focus so that we see him as central. And the Bible says in Matthew 13, the parable of the, the, uh, the um, pearl of great price, he says that a man will sell all that he has when he finds this pearl, when he, when he sees this pearl, when he understands how valuable this pearl is, that he, when he finds it, he will sell all that he has and he will buy that pearl. Because that pearl is central. 
It is valuable beyond all other things, which obviously that pearl is Christ. In Jonah 1, Jonah is going to give us a a picture, if you will, a representation of this type of event. We're going to read uh, this, this morning the first 10 verses and then unfold some of the events, especially as relates to Jonah's chastening, as God chastens Jonah to bring him back into, to bring him back into focus. God chastens Jonah to bring himself back into focus. And you might be here this morning and the Lord has become out of focus for you. You've become so focused on the things going on around you that Christ has become the blurred background. And what Jonah is going to show us is what can we expect, and what we're going to learn this morning is what can we expect when Christ becomes the the blurred background. And let me say this to you as well. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm glad that Christ is not the blurred background for me. Well, let me encourage you that Jonah was a pretty solid guy, a pretty religious guy, a prophet of the Lord. He, he, he wasn't uh, 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 what, we, what we would call some worldly wicked person. So if it can happen to him where Christ becomes background, can it happen to us? So can we just stop and meditate for a moment and say, Lord, what do you, what do you have for me this morning? What are you going to show me about me this morning, and uh, just put your name in Jonah's spot, and let's see what the Lord has for us. Let's begin in verse number one. The scripture says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and we, we, we stop and we can stop and just pay a short attention to the word but. Uh, God calls Jonah to do something in Jonah. That word but is a, is a contrastive word. It means that we're going the other direction. And we're not going in the same direction where we would have and there. And Jonah obeyed the Lord, right? We have the word but there, which saying is saying, I'm going this way. God has called me to go this way. This is Jonah's problem. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Just notice again as well that Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord. We see it mentioned twice here, and it's mentioned one more time later down in this chapter. Jonah is running from God's presence. Jonah does not want to be in, the, uh, in view of God. He doesn't want God to see him. He wants to be free from the presence of God. Why does Jonah want to be free from the presence of God? What is Jonah's motivation for wanting to be free from the presence of God? There are two reasons why Jonah wants to be free from the presence of God. Number one is, simply, Jonah was sinning. Jonah had refused to obey God. He had refused to go and preach the gospel to the people of Nineveh. And so because of Jonah's disobedience, he is now has no desire to be in the presence of God. The second reason why Jonah has no desire to be in the presence of God, and if you're taking notes, this is super important, it's not in your notes since I passed them out, but you can write it in there yourself, is because Jonah did not understand the character of God. Jonah did not understand the character of God to help him in the journey, to forgive him, to restore him. All of those things Jonah didn't comprehend. When we get a, when we get a poor perspective of how God receives those who are sinning, We often don't go to him, right? Imagine your children that that have done something wrong. Why do they hide their sin? Why do they not come to you and tell you that they've done wrong? Because there is shame and guilt and maybe even fear there. They don't understand the character of the parent, or maybe they do understand the character of the parent. The issue is, is that God is not like human parents on many occasions. Oftentimes, we run from God because we don't understand his character. 
We don't understand how he would receive us if we would just come to him. People fear God who are lost, rightfully, because if they come to God, God will judge them. But does he have that same attitude towards his own children? The Bible says this in verse number four, but another transition here, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each, each one cried out to his own God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what are you doing? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the, lots fell, and the lot fell on Jonah they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who created the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Again, we see that phrase that Jonah was free, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It's important to note this morning that Jonah's sin wasn't that he ran from God. Rather, Jonah's running from God was a result of his sin. Jonah's sin was that he refused to obey God. It could have been just as easy for Jonah to stay in Galilee where he was and disobey God. You see, it wasn't just that Jonah ran to, to another place to find rest and comfort and to find all of those things that were in opposition to God's calling. It was that Jonah did it because he refused to do what God told him to do. Jonah's sin was a sin of omission, he wasn't obedient to God's command, and when he wasn't obedient to God's command, he did not want to stand in the presence of God. He did not want to be where he could be held accountable. He did not want to be where he would be reminded of his sinfulness. Jonah did not want to be confronted by the holiness of God, nor did he want to be reminded of God's disappointment in him, all based upon Jonah's perception of who God was. Therefore, what does Jonah do? Jonah runs. In his guilt, he couldn't stay where his sin would haunt him. Remember, Jonah could have stayed in Galilee where he was and been equally the sinner that he was by trying to run to the opposite place. It is simply natural for us as human beings when we are doing or not doing what God has called us to do, it is natural to want to run from God. It is natural to not want to be in his presence. This is not the sin, it is the result of the sin. We see this in modern day culture with people hopping churches. And they go from church to church and they stay there for a season until they start being discovered and then they want to go to a different church. Or not just hopping churches, but we also see it in forsaking church in general. People, their involvement in the church, their involvement in regards to just weekly involvement in the, in the worship service is something that is becoming less and less important. They limit their, their, their time at church. Or if you go to the broader scope, they're involved only in the worship service on Sunday mornings and nothing more. They don't want to connect at other levels because there is an accountability amongst the body of Christ. We're the family of God. So we, we, we see this in the modern culture with people hopping churches, people forsaking church, people quitting church altogether. And then it leads to people hating church. There are people who come to church who hate it. They don't, and it's like, well, Pastor John, that just seems kind of odd. No, it's true. People come to church who literally hate being there. 
They feel some sense of an obligation. They minimize it as much as they can. They're not involved in any more than they absolutely feel like they have to be involved in, but they hate church because it exposes them. There is something about church that exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. And Jonah didn't imagine Jonah stays in Galilee. He probably has a, a, a group of believers. He's a prophet. He probably has a group that he, that he fellowships with. He might have a, a small community group or a men's group. Or, I mean, we don't know what Jonah was involved in, but what we do know is Galilee was going to be a reminder to Jonah of his failure to follow God. So what does Jonah do? Jonah gets out of the place that's going to constantly remind him of his failure towards God. This is, this is, let me say this to you, this is a human characteristic. It's the way we are in our flesh. It's the natural, the way that we respond to our own, fallen, our own frailties. People run when they feel guilt. People run when they are exposed. And people run when they're trying to hide something. You think back in the Garden of Eden, you remember what uh, Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God? What's the first thing that they did? They tried to hide from God. I mean, that makes no sense at all, right? They come in, they, they, I mean, something's missing up here when it comes to trying to hide from God. It doesn't make a lot of, but a lot of things that we do when we're living in sin don't make a lot of sense. When we're dealing with God, who sees all things and knows all things. When we feel guilty, when we feel like we're being exposed or when we are trying to hide something, we often will avoid the place that that will bring it to the forefront the most. John 3, verse 20 and 21 says it this way, For everyone who does wicked deeds hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works will be exposed. He hates the light. She hates the light. Doesn't come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. But whoever does what is true, whoever is honest, whoever is transparent, it doesn't say whoever is perfect. It says whoever does what is honest, whoever is walking in the light, comes to the light so that their deeds may be clearly seen. This is not somebody coming to the Lord without without sins. This is not somebody coming to the Lord without failures. This is not somebody coming to the Lord without guilt. This is somebody coming to the Lord with all of those things and recognizing that the Lord is forgiving, that the Lord is merciful and gracious and will receive them. He comes to the light so that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been carried out or they have been wrought in God. In other words, that God's character might be exposed through our fallenness. God's grace and mercy might be exposed through our frailties. According to the story of Jonah, what can we expect? This is our first thought this morning as we pursue some things to consider. What can we expect when we run from God? What can we expect when we are running from God? The first one, number one is, and you're, if you have a sheet there with the, an outline on it, you can follow along. Number one is, is God will pursue. When you run from God, God is going to pursue you. What Jonah failed to recognize and what many of us fail to recognize is that it is impossible to escape God's presence. It's impossible. There is no way that we, can, that we can get out of the presence of God. He is always with us. And this is not a judgment to us. It is a mercy to us. It is a kindness to us. It is a grace to us that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He tells us that in Hebrews 13.5. It's, it's, it's wonderful when you're walking in truth and you recognize that God never leaves you. It's not so great when you're walking in sin and you recognize that God never leaves you, right? Except if you understand that God is merciful and kind to those who recognize his presence even in the midst of their fallenness. You see, there is mercy for the broken. 
There is mercy for those who are empty. There is mercy for those who are sinful and recognize it. God sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross to pay the full penalty for those people's sins. If you will come to Jesus and acknowledge that, Jesus, I, I've, I, have, I have not obeyed your word. I have not done what you have commanded me to do or called me to do. The Bible teaches us that Jesus will forgive us on the merits of his own sacrifice. And then not only that, he will enable us or strengthen us to do the things that we are called to do. You cannot escape the presence of God. It doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter how fast you run. It doesn't matter how good a runner you are. You will never escape the presence of God. And listen to me. The sad thing is that some people will never realize that until they're standing in his presence facing him on judgment day. It's better to figure that out now and realize that you're never going to outrun God. You're never going to outrun God. You're never going to get so far ahead that he's not there with you or so far behind that he's not there with you. It's not going to happen. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you can recognize and kneel down before his sovereign control of things, before you can recognize his justice and holiness and your sinfulness and plead with him for mercy, and he will show you, he will show you what? He will show you mercy. You think about the two men that came, to the, came in prayer, and they, one prayed and said, look at me, Lord, I pray every day, and I fasted this week, and I gave my tithes and my offerings. And the Bible says he prayed as if he was praying to himself. Isn't that interesting? He prayed as if he was, he was self-exalting. Look at how great I am. And the Bible says he walked away unjustified. That means he walked in thinking he was good. He walked out lost as he was when he walked in. The other guy comes in and he kneels down before the Lord and just in a simple prayer, he says this, Lord, be merciful to me because I am a, I'm a sinner. Man, just as simple as that, he walks out of there and the Bible says he is justified. And then the word literally means he is saved. What did he do to get saved, Pastor John? He came down and he knelt before the one who was saving. The other guy came in and he stood before the one who could save. And he self-proclaimed all of his goodness. And he walked out and the Lord said, go save yourself. Go save yourself. And if that man never came to a point where he realized he couldn't save himself, he's in eternal damnation today. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm not telling you my my opinion. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. This is what we're seeing here. God does not let you get out of his sight. You cannot escape his presence. Listen to what Psalm 139 says. You're probably probably familiar with this text. He says this, Where shall I go from your presence or from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, behold, you are there. If I make my bed in hell... Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you shall even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me shall be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's no escaping the presence of God. As far as Jonah ran, as hard as Jonah ran, he was not going to get out of God's presence. You may be running from God this morning. You may have some sin in your life, and you're doing everything in your power to escape the presence of God in dealing with your sin. Listen, you're not going to outrun God. It's not going to happen. So number one, God will pursue. Number two, circumstances will destabilize. Circumstances will destabilize. What does God do in Jonah's life to refocus him? What does he do? The Bible says in verse number four, but God 
hurled a storm. Now, first of all, you have to recognize this statement implies a direct act from God, a a willing, sovereign act from God. He is throwing, he is casting, if you will, this storm into the sea, this wind into the sea to stir up a great storm. So now Jonah's life has gone from running from God to now he's in the midst of a He's in the midst of a storm. The waves are all around him. The, the sea is beating up against the ship. All of this stuff is a, reflect, is a reflection of the life of a believer who is running from God. Listen, it's not the life of an unbeliever who is running from God. It is the life of a believer who is running from God that his life will become stormy. His finances will become stormy. His relationships will become stormy. Things in his life, possessions in his life, all of these things will become stormy because God is pursuing him to get his attention. Notice this. God is doing it to get his attention off of these things. He uses the things that he's trying to take our attention off of to get our attention back on him by causing them to begin to fall apart. It's not only that, and you may be there today, you may be asking yourself the question, why is, why is life so stormy for me? And you don't realize that you've been running for God for a long time. It's the interesting thing about running from God is oftentimes when you're running from God, you don't recognize that you're running from God. You don't realize it. You don't, I mean, anybody in here ever been discouraged before? Anybody... Join me, because I don't want to be all alone in here and been discouraged. Anybody in here ever be discouraged before and you didn't know it until you came out of it and you're like, man, I was discouraged. Anybody like that in here? We often don't know where we're at when we're in it. And sometimes we have to come out on the other side. What does the Lord do? The Lord graciously sends things into our life, sends turmoil, sends disturbances, sends turbulence into our life to get our attention off of the things of this world and onto, back onto him. I want you to note that three times in this passage, we won't look at them, but in verse, one, verse 4, verse 11, and verse 13, the Bible says that the storm intensified. The storm, and when they tried to solve the storm in their own abilities, the storm got worse. God, uh, God threw out a harder wind, a harsher wind. The waves got a little bit higher each time that the uh, mariners and, 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 uh, and Jonah tried to solve it on their own. That's a lesson right there, isn't it? Things are not getting better for us. They're getting worse. They're declining. The storm is getting greater. Each season of life, we see an intensification in the storm of life, don't we? But we've never taken the, we've never taken the, we've never accepted the truth that possibly we as a nation have been running from God for a long time. And that we're not going to experience his blessing. And the storm is meant to get us to take our focus off of these things and get our focus back on Jesus. And the storm has to keep intensifying. That's why the Bible says in the last days it'll be like a woman who is in travail. You're going to have an increase in pain and an increase in intensity and an, in, an increase in the number of problems that the world is going to face. Why is that? Because God is taking our attention off of the world and bringing it back to him. I mean, that's why he says in Second Chronicles, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. That's why he says that. The world is not willing to accept the fact that the solution to our problem, the solution to America's problem, is not more self-effort. It is less self-effort. We will experience God's grace when we kneel before him in repentance. We don't need the ability to solve our problems. We need to recognize our inability to solve our problems and embrace the one who can solve our problems. What we will do until we recognize that, folks, we will continue to solve our problems temporarily and partially. And it will give us false hope. And people will die and go to eternal damnation during our season of false hope. 
because the church hasn't embraced the fact that the solution to every problem is to fall down on your knees before the God of the universe and to repent of our sins. That's why we have all these storms. The devil has deceived us and kept us from believing that that's the reality. The storms will keep intensifying until we are willing to settle to... The storms will keep intensifying and our circumstances will keep destabilizing until our conscience is pricked to the point where we bow down before the God of the universe and we beg him for mercy. I mean, honestly, listen, if you will just read the next chapter, that's exactly what Jonah experiences. It's a beautiful picture in the next chapter of a man who is at the bottom of the ocean and the, and the, and the weeds are grabbing a hold of him. And in that moment, this great, I mean, you can just picture it. In that moment, this great big fish comes by and saves his life. That's the gospel. I tell you something, you'll never understand the gospel until you're at the bottom of the ocean and the weeds are grabbing a hold of you and there is no escape. And this big, gigantic fish comes by, which is the most weirdest way to save somebody, right? Everybody thinks of the fish as some kind of judgment from God. The fish was God's salvation to Jonah. Jonah was this close to death. tell you something, America will not be saved until they recognize that they're at the bottom of the ocean and the waves are coming over their heads and the weeds are grabbing hold of their bodies and there is no escape except Jesus. And let me say this to you as well, the church is the first place that that needs to be, be experienced. If the church isn't feeling it, if the church isn't knowing it, and if the church isn't preaching it, no one else will. Let's go on. Circumstances will destabilize. Number three, securities will fail. Securities will fail. When our circumstances start destabilizing, the things that we put our faith in will begin to collapse. You'll notice in the text, and I'm not going to read it to you, but we read it already. Number one, the ship begins to break apart. The ship is really the only security that these, sa- these sailors have. It is really their only hope is that the ship will stay together and they'll be able to make it to land. God sends a storm that's big enough to begin to break apart their main security. What is your security blanket today? What is your security blanket today? What are you trusting in to get you out of the situation or the circumstances? Because I tell you this, God's going to make the storm big enough to knock your security blanket out of the water. No pun intended. Our securities are going to start falling apart. And we see that in our culture. We see that happening right around us today. The ship begins to break apart. The security of, of a place, the security of a home, the security of a lot of things that we, we take for granted today. And we can just look over in Ukraine and know that in a moment we can be displaced from our homes. In a moment we can be displaced from our homes. The ship begins to break apart. The mariners begin to unload the ship. The security of sacrifice. Let's, let's get rid of all of this stuff. Let's get, in the pictures, let's get rid of all of this stuff in our lives. Let's get rid of all of these things. And, and it, these were probably uh, ships, not passenger ships, but they were likely cargo ships. And they're like, let's get rid of everything in our life. The problem isn't getting rid of everything in your life. The problem is getting focused back on the one who matters. And so the Lord will start to, the Lord will start to unravel your security in things, your confidence in things. And then the mariners begin to row harder. The text says that they rowed as hard, they rowed, they rowed as, hard as they could row. The Lord will begin to take away your security of self-effort, of human strength and ability. The Lord wants us to be focused on him. Psalm 118 and verse 8, the Bible says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8 says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Watch this. They collapse and fall, but we will stand upright. 
Jeremiah 17, verse 5 through 8 says this, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabitable salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in the Lord. And I didn't repeat that, God did. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Our securities, when we trust in man, when we trust in the flesh, when we trust in things, begin to collapse. God proves them to be empty. God proves them to be worthless. God proves them to be faulty. And I believe that we are experiencing in the world around us, God's showing us how frail man is. I'm yet to see man actually getting it. But he's showing us that. He's showing us that. Next, when I don't remember, for visitors, when I don't remember my number or point I'm on, it's next. <laughs> next. Note this. Everyone suffers when we run from God. Everyone suffers when we run from God. You're not the only one that's going to suffer when you, you're not the only one that's going to experience the storm when you run. It's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your wife. It's going to affect your husband. It's going to affect your children. When you have chosen to not do what God wants you to do and you are now running from his presence, it's going to affect everyone around you. Jonah wasn't the only one that experienced the suffering. The mariners experienced the suffering. And others experience the suffering as well. We don't think of the mariners' families who were possibly sitting back watching the idea of this storm or seeing the idea of this storm being broadcast and knowing that their, their husbands are in the midst of this storm. And children seeing, I mean, we don't know the full extent, but what we do know is that when we run from God, it affects others. It doesn't just impact us. Adam and Eve were a wonderful example of this. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, everyone became guilty before God. When the spies that went into the promised land came back with a negative report, everyone wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It would have been nice if the Lord would have just made the 10 spies wander in the wilderness, right? But everyone wandered in the wilderness. Your children might be wandering in a wilderness right now that you have created for them. Your mate might be wandering in a wilderness right now that you have created for them. Because you did something you weren't supposed to do or refused to do something that you were supposed to do and instead of doing business with God, you ran from him. And he's going to get your attention. He's going to get your attention and he's going to be God. And he's not going to let you be God. Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6, it says, You shall not bow down. This is right before the Ten Commandments are given. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. And I visit the iniquities of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And I show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Everyone suffers. Next, idols are exposed when we face God's chastening. When we're running from God, we often find out what we're truly trusting in. The reason we often find out what we're truly trusting in, because it is what we run to. What you find in our text is that all of the sailors go to their own gods. And then they tell Jonah, hey, Jonah, why don't you go talk to your God too? Not speaking of him as Yahweh God, but speaking as 
Go talk to your God as well, and maybe we can get one of our gods to give us some kind of advice on how we can, they, they even say that, maybe he'll give us some insight on how we can fix it. And listen, God isn't about giving them insight on how to fix it, is he? Was God about, hey, if you row on this side of the boat for this much, what was God about? Their problem would be solved when they dealt with the sin that was in the camp. We see our idols when we face, we see our idols when we run from God because it's what we run to. It's the fleshly comforts and the mind-numbing comforts that we run to when we don't want to face the almighty God of the universe in our sins. It exposes who we are and what we worship, and it also exposes the weakness and frailty of those things. James 1 and verse 14 and 15 says it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, and these desires, when they are fully conceived, bring forth sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that was the path that they were on. The last thought under this heading is simply this, loss will be experienced. Loss will be experienced. When you run from God, you'll lose things. What those things are, we don't know. For Jonah, a whole ship of things. Possibly the lives of those men, if some of them would have died, obviously they didn't, but that could have been a result of it. The ship was completely destroyed, worthless. Jonah's reputation was destroyed. Jonah's witness was destroyed in the process. They come down to the one man on the boat who should be actively serving the God who created the wind and the waves, right? They come down to him, and what do they call him? He's sleeper. It's a shameful term to be called to a man who's in the middle of a storm, and many people are suffering, but he's asleep below the... I mean, literally, it's like the guy, if you think about it from a war perspective, it's like the guy who's sleeping when guns are being fired and people's lives are being lost. Loss of cargo, loss of respect, loss, loss of reputation, loss of witness, loss of everything. For some of us, it's a loss of our wives. It's the loss of our children. It's the loss of things that we have. When Lot went into Sodom and Gomorrah because he wanted the well-watered plains of Sodom, he left without his wife because she became a pillar of salt. He left and his daughters were completely immoral and they, and they had relations with him. We have two nations that came as a result of his incest with his own daughters. He lost his family. How many of you think Sodom thought he was going to lose his family or Lot thought he was going to lose his family when he went into Sodom and Gomorrah? You compromise, you compromise the truth, you compromise obedience to God, and you run from God, and it's going to cost you something. And it's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you. That God loves you enough to strip you of some things so that he becomes the focus of your life again. Because truly, folks, the reality is this morning is what happens in eternity is far more valuable than what happens in this life. What happens to you spiritually is far more important than what happens to you physically. You believe that? Loss will occur. Mark 8 and verse 36 and 37 says this, referring to the gospel. He says this, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And then he says this, what will you give in exchange for your soul? In other words, what is your soul worth? The devil will give you whatever it takes to buy your soul. The end is not good. What is the solution? The last thought, three things underneath this. You'll see them on your bulletin. Number one, what is, your, what is the solution? Number one, confess your sins. Confess your sins when you are running. So maybe you're here today and you're running. You know you're running from God. You're living a lifestyle of sin, but it's not just that you're living a lifestyle of sin, but you are actually running from God. You don't want to be in his presence. You don't want to be in church. You don't want to be around God's people. You don't want to be around light that's going to shine in on your sins. You just want to be free from all of those things. Listen, the solution is simply this. Confess it to God. 
God is big enough to deal with your running in a merciful, gracious way. Confess it to him. God, I'm running. God, I'm running. I'm in the bottom of this ship. You told me to go to, you told me to, go to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. I'm running. Just tell him. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins when you are running from God. Confess your sins before you are running from God. So if you're not running from God right now, but you're not being obedient to God, you need to confess your disobedience. Listen, if you will just, whatever, wherever season you are, if you will just come to God, he will receive you. He will embrace you with loving mercy and kindness. It's not when we come to God in, 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 in acknowledging our fallenness that we experience harshness. It's when we don't come to God in our fallenness that we experience what seems to be harshness. Confess your sins when you are running. Confess your sins before you are running. And then remain or return to God's presence and receive his care. Either stay in his presence or return to his presence and experience the patient, gentle, nurturing, caring kindness of God. One of the things that people don't understand is that one of the reasons why God allowed sin into this world was that he wanted to display forgiveness. If there's no sin, there's no forgiveness. If there's no sin, there's no mercy. If there's no sin, there's no grace. We don't get to see the full expression of God unless we, unless we come to him as sinners. But if we come to him as the sinners, he's not going to forsake us. That's the devil's lie. John 8, 37 says that anybody who comes to him, he will in no wise push them away or cast them out. If you'll come to Jesus this morning and you'll say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm a bad uh, father. I'm a bad mother. I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad wife. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not being a good child. The Lord is not going to forsake you. He's going to embrace you and say, hey, let's, let's figure this out. I died on the cross for that sin. You're good. Let's figure it out. He's so kind to us and so forgiving of us. Turn with me in closing. I want to just close with a few references. The first John uh, is the first one. First John chapter number one, verse number five. Listen to, the, listen, to, listen to what John writes. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice that. If you will walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all sin. You say, Pastor John, what does it mean to walk in the light? It simply means to acknowledge that you're a sinner. It means to not try to be to hide your sins from God. If you will walk in the light, Jesus will forgive you. If you will walk in darkness, there is no forgiveness. He goes on to say it this way. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, so the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What does it mean to walk in the light and experience the forgiveness of God? It means to acknowledge before God that you're a sinner. It means to come to, come to him in your failure and receive what he has for you in Christ. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And then lastly, James 1, 24 and 25, he says this, 
For he who looks at himself in the perfect law of liberty or in the law, he who looks at himself and see, I'm, I'm, para, I'm paraphrasing, I'll give you the rest of the text here. He who looks at himself in light of the law and sees himself as sinful, he knows himself to be sinful, and he goes, and I'm back to the text here, but he goes away and forgets what he is like. He is not going to receive mercy. But it says, he or the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and stays there. In other words, you look at yourself through the lens of God's law, of his holiness, of his justice, of his condemnation, of your sinfulness. You see it all. You get it all. And you just stay there. It says, being a hearer, he says, the law of liberty perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The Bible tells us in Psalms, a man who loves God's law will never be offended. Because there's nothing that speaks iller, if that's the right word, there's nothing that speaks worse of us than God's law. And there's nothing that speaks better of us than God's grace. If you this morning will admit where you're at in relation to God's law, he will show you grace. If you refuse to admit where you're at in relation to God's law, he will show you justice. Where will you be this morning? Let's pray. Father, Jonah gives us a good example. You've given us this in your word of the things that we can experience, that we can um, go through if we're running from you. If our sins have caused us to not want to be in your presence, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of that, that you would be merciful to us and gracious, that you would bring us back to a place where we can come to you, even in our fallenness, and say, Lord, here's, here, here, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm full of sin, Lord. I, I, I don't do what I ought to do, and I do the things I ought not to do, as the apostle Paul said. I need mercy, and I need grace every single day. You have told us that you will provide it, and that you have provided it in Jesus. Please convince us. Please change us and transform us for your glory and by your grace. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen.